See if you agree with this. The more that you love someone, the more meaningful the goodbye. The more you love someone, the more meaningful the goodbye. I mean, maybe you sense that dropping your kindergartner off at school for the first time. Uh, or sending an 18-year-old off to college for the first time. Or saying goodbye to your grandchildren after summer vacation. When will I see them again? I, um, I remember in January when I was loading Karis's Jeep and she was getting ready to head off to the great adventure in Seattle. And she was just rolling down the road. And I just stood there. I could hear Harry Chapin singing in the background, The Cat's in the Cradle. I'm going to hold myself together here just because we don't want to blubber through the first 15 minutes of the sermon. But isn't it the case that the more we love someone, the more meaningful the goodbye? Jesus loved the disciples, and so he loved them And when he said goodbye to them, he said goodbye to them in a very meaningful way. That's the section of the gospel that we're in, John 14 through 16, the farewell story, the farewell discourse. He said goodbye to them in the most meaningful way. He promised them two things. And be careful when you say goodbye to someone and promise them something, right? You want to be careful that you don't overpromise on the goodbye. Jesus does not overpromise. He promised them two things. He promised them that he would return. Verse 2 of chapter 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a beautiful, amazing, my father's house is an amazing place. I will come again and get you to take you there. He promised them he would return. And secondly, in the meantime, they would not be alone. They would not be alone. They would not, they would not be lonely and separated from him. He would send the Holy Spirit, verse 17 says, of chapter 14, to dwell with you and be in you. The Spirit of God is the one who makes Christ present in our lives. So Jesus will remain present with them. He promises to remain present with them through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus did, walking and guiding and teaching and helping them day after day after day, walking with the disciples, that those same things the Spirit of God would do on behalf of Jesus. J.I. Packer writes in his excellent book on the, uh, on the Holy Spirit, the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry at this time or any time in the Christian era is to mediate the presence of Christ, mediate the presence of Jesus with us. We are disciples who are walking with Jesus, but not like those who first walk with the embodied Son of God. We walk with Him because the Spirit makes his presence possible to us. The essence of the Spirit's ministry at this time or any other time is to mediate, to make possible the real presence of Jesus in our lives. And he can do that because he's a person. The Spirit of God is a person. So John, the gospel writer, will often refer to him as a person. He says him and he over and over again uh, in chapter 14 and 16. He's describing a person. Throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is said to do things like this, to hear, speak, witness, convince, lead, guide, teach, command, forbid, desire, intercede for us in prayer, 
even be lied to and grieved. The Holy Spirit can be lied to and grieved. These are only the kind of things that, that describe people. The, the, this, these things that the Bible describes the Spirit of God doing are things that only a person can do. He's not an influence, though he certainly influences us. He's not a feeling, though he most certainly deepens our affections for Jesus. He is a person like the Father and the Son, a divine person. So on the night of his betrayal, on the way to the cross, Jesus promises that another person will be walking with them in his place. The disciples are being told, I'm heading to the cross. In fact, there's this line at the end of our lesson today, verse 30. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. He's talking about the battle he's about to go engage at the cross. He's saying, I'm going to the cross, and, and the ruler of this world is coming. I am not going to be with you. I'm going to do something for you and on your behalf. While I'm gone, I'm promising you that another person is going to walk with you and be with you, and this person is not just any person. It's the spirit of the living God. And there's a word that Jesus uses in verse 16. So if you would, look at verse 16 and verse 26. Look at verse 16 and look for the word. And verse 26, same word, that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. He calls him, the ESV has it, he calls him a helper. Or if you have the, new, uh, if you have the NIV, you might see advocate or counselor. Or another translation has comforter. It's, 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 uh, Jesus says, I'm, I'm promising you that the parakletos, the helper or advocate or counselor or, or, or uh, comforter is going to come and he's going to walk with you. It's going to be as if I was right there with you. Anytime you, you are studying the Bible and you come up with a word that seems to have several different translations, and that's the case here, like you can translate this word parakletos uh, in verse 16 and 26, a variety of ways. Anytime you see different respected translations choosing different words, that's a clue that this is a really rich word, a, a word that is loaded with meaning, and it's really hard for any particular English word to carry all of that freight. So what I want to do today is just kind of tease out these different aspects of the role of the Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, and think about four ways that the Spirit makes good on Jesus' promise. Jesus promises to send not just a thing, but a person, someone. And he calls him the helper, uh, or think of him as the counselor or advocate, or think of him as the comforter. Let's think through four ways that Spirit uh, makes good on Jesus' promise. And we'll start with the love of Christ. The Spirit of God enables the love of Jesus as a person. This is really foundational. Um, we've already seen in John chapter 3 that it's the Spirit who brings us into a new relationship with God. That's where you get born again or born anew. So now it's no surprise that the Spirit is the one who deepens that existing relationship. He brings us into relationship with God, then he deepens our affection and our love for God the Father and God the Son. Uh, things don't relate to one another in love. People relate to one another in love. People. The Spirit of God is a person. God is a person. The Father, the Son, 
and the Spirit are described in the Bible as persons, so it should be no surprise that the one who brings us into relationship is the one who sustains and deepens our affection for God. If you love God more today than you did yesterday, it's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit of Christ, deepening your affection. It's the work of the Spirit of God. Notice how many times in this passage love is mentioned. Look at verse 15. If you love me, drop down to verse 23. If anyone loves me, verse 28. If you loved me, verse 31, I love the Father. Over and over again, it's the Spirit of God in this context that Jesus is promising is going to help cultivate love for God and deepen one's affection for God. So it's not just love, it's loving obedience. That's why Jesus says in verse 15, if you love me, follow me. If you love me, keep, your command, uh, keep my commandments. If you love me, do what I am calling you to do. It's such a better life. I want you to experience this. Loving obedience. The Spirit is making Jesus present in our lives, not physically, because Jesus, Jesus is still the incarnated Son of God who's seated at the right hand of God the Father. There's only one physically embodied God-man. It's Jesus, the Son of God. He, he's not with us physically. He is with us relationally. He's the one who's drawing you into deeper relationship with Jesus, deepening your love, your affection, your desire to live in loving obedience to Christ. And not because you have to. Have you ever done something for somebody that was good and right, but you also wanted to? And when you did that thing that was good and right that you also wanted to do, you started to move beyond duty to delight? Oh, this is fun. This is good. This is pleasing. This is right. Jesus is calling us the Spirit, rather, is calling us to deepen our obedient affection for Christ. And he's the one who, who makes it happen. So Jesus promises the Spirit on the night that he's betrayed and he's about to leave. He promises, I'm going to be present with you through the Spirit, and he's going to deepen your love and affection for me and for God. And by the way, if you want to know, if you want to do a little self-assessment, a little, a little introspection here, uh, if you want to know whether or not your love for Jesus is deepening, do some, uh, some fruit inspection. Do some fruit inspection. Like, like when you go to the produce section at the store, you come into the produce section and you get in there and you're in there on the wrong day and, you know, rookie shoppers like me, you don't know exactly what day they put the produce out and what time. Some of you know this, but I, I don't. And so I'm in there looking around and I'm, I'm ooh, this is not looking good. This is, there's very little of this. There's very little of that. And what's there is really picked over. It's just, yeah, that's not good fruit. It's old. It's not fresh. You do that at the grocery store, right? Help me out here. Are you with me? This is the 11 o'clock service. You guys are awake? So you can do the same thing in your own life. You can kind of go into the produce section of your life. This is the Bible teaches us that the, that the fruit of the Spirit is observable. It's evidence of grace. And since the Spirit wants to produce life change in accordance with who Christ is, you can start thinking about love and joy and peace. Is, is love fresh? Is the gentleness, love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, 
long-suffering, uh, long-suffering, long-suffering, <laughs> long-suffering. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm not the only one who got that. That's good. Um, yeah, we love children in this church, and we're going to keep doing that. So everybody be patient and long-suffering. Look, if, you're, if, you're, if your gentleness and your patience is not fresh, when people come into the store of your life, they're going to see that it's been picked over. It's six days old. You can't live on six-day-old gentleness. You can't live on 10-day-old patience. You can't live on two weeks ago gladness. The Spirit of God, if He's at work in you, is enabling you to deepen and keep fresh your affection for Jesus. And it ends up looking like, as Paul describes it in Galatians 5, the fruit, evidence, produce of the Spirit. So the disciples need to know that their love for Jesus and His love for them will continue and be ever-increasing, and it will be. That's what the Spirit wants to do. There's a second thing that He wants to do. Not only does He enable love of Jesus and the deepening of our affection and our growing in Christ, but He, he sustains the teaching of Jesus. Notice verse 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, the the helper or the counselor or the advocate, we're thinking about counselor and advocate here, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send to my, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. What does Jesus have in mind here? He's saying that the Spirit's work will be to help them recall and comprehend what Jesus has been teaching them for the past three years. To both recall, uh, because like those disciples, you know, we were knuckleheads just like the first knuckleheaded disciples. We don't recall everything. We don't hear everything. We don't listen as well as we should. So he's, the Spirit of God is going to help the early disciples recall and comprehend everything that Jesus was teaching them. Now, when he says all things, he doesn't mean everything in the world. Like, clearly, he's not talking about universal knowledge. Like, you could know all things about everything. He's talking about all the things that you could know about me from the Scriptures, Right? The law, the prophets, and the writings, they testify of me. They speak of me over and over again. When Jesus says all things, he's talking, about, he's talking about the scriptures, and he's talking about the faith. He's talking about the witness of the Old Testament. He's talking about the gospel. I am going, the Spirit of God is going to teach you everything I've been trying to teach you for the last three years. He's going to re- help you recall it. He's going to bring it to light. He's going to help you comprehend it. He's even going to help you write a book about it. The Spirit of God's the one who superintended the authors. So that Peter will say in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, holy men of God wrote the scriptures as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, as they were carried along, as they were inspired to give a true, accurate, faithful account of who Jesus was. That's the work of the Spirit. Now, given that the Spirit is called another advocate, and that's one of the best ways to translate the word uh, parakletos in verse 16 and, and, and verse 26. I want you to think for, with me for a minute about the gospel, especially in those terms. Think about Jesus as your legal advocate. Think about what it would be like to go into a courtroom and stand before 
the most challenging, holy, perfect, righteous judge who is going to scrutinize everything you've ever done wrong and think about how much you would need an advocate. Not, not someone standing out in front of you saying, hurry up, come on this way, or someone standing behind you and pushing you forward, but rather someone standing next to you who when he stood up to spoke, you realized you could just sit down and close your mouth because the district attorney standing next to you is going to take care of this. He's going to speak. She's going to speak the truth on your behalf. And the more he speaks, the more you realize you have nothing to say. And you better just sit there and watch him plead your case. Jesus is your legal advocate. Uh, New Testament scholars will say, almost to a consensus, there is rich forensic language in parakletos, in this um, counselor or advocate. So if it's counselor, it's not marriage counselor or financial counselor, it's legal counsel. It's advocate language. It's attorney language who defends you. At the heart of the gospel, listen, if you're thinking about Christianity for the first time, I want you to hear this this morning. If you're considering the Christian faith, listen to this. At the heart of the gospel, Jesus wants to be your advocate so that you can stop defending yourself, so that you can stop trying to defend yourself. Jesus is our justifier. He's the, ones who, he's, he's the one who stands in for us because we cannot defend or justify ourselves. Therefore, another advocate, another advocate. So he's promising that the heart of the gospel is that Jesus is our advocate to stand before God. Right? We can't stand before God alone. So Jesus then promises that as he leaves, the Spirit of God is going to sustain that teaching, sustain the center and heart of the gospel. I want to be your advocate, the Spirit says. And when the Spirit acts on our behalf, he's simply pointing us back to Christ, who is the advocate for every man or woman who will ever be able to stand before God. So stop pleading your own case. Some of you... I know this because I am one. Some of you just find yourself constantly pleading your own case, like, like you're going to impress this judge that you're standing before. You're not. You can't. Like everything you think is good is tainted. Every time you try, oh, there's lots of good things that you do, but you can't impress perfection. So the liberating truth about the gospel is when you come to a place of realizing who Jesus is as your legal advocate, you can stand before the Father saying, I'm not perfect. I'm not even close to perfect. In fact, the longer I do this, the more broken I realize I am. But I'm just going to stop talking and I'm going to let the advocate who's standing right next to me, I'm going to let what he said. Listen to him. And then Jesus pleads your case. And he says to the father, don't look at him. He's a mess. Don't look at her. She can't fix this. I am the righteous one. 
I'm going to stand in for her and for him and for her and for him all the way down the line. I'm going to be their advocate. That's the heart of the gospel. So that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might then get in on the righteousness of God that's in Christ. So stop pleading your own case. It's running deep. It runs deep in you. Spirit of God, like, so if somebody wants to know, is the Spirit of God working this morning? Is the Spirit of God at moving in hearts and minds? What's he doing today? Here's what he's doing. He's sustaining the gospel teaching that Jesus is the best case you could ever make for yourself. Get in Christ and rest on his, you know, rest in him being your advocate That's what the Spirit of God is busy doing. He's enabling us to love and deepening our love for God and our love and affection for Jesus. Secondly, he is sustaining the gospel teaching of Christ, especially the the idea of of a, a legal advocate who would make our case for us. And then here's the third thing. This is this is um it's probably a little bit more personal. He brings the conviction of Jesus. So in this case, um, it's, it's a different role in the courtroom. Now he's the prosecutor. Now with this sense, he's the one, and the Bible teaches this in numerous ways throughout the New Testament, that the Spirit of God, when he's at work, he's actually bringing conviction in hearts and minds. Uh, he's, he's the prosecuting attorney in this case, not just a defense attorney. It, that is, he's working to indict us and bring us to a place of conviction. As J.I. Packer again helps here, um, the spirit, he says, acts as humanity's prosecutor. I love this language. Working in heart after heart, pressing for the verdict, pressing for this verdict. I was wrong. I'm guilty, I need forgiveness. I was wrong, I'm guilty, I need forgiveness. As the Spirit of God brings brings home this sense of your guilt and your need, he also brings with it a sense of, "I, I better not reject Jesus. He may be my only chance to be righteous before God. The Spirit, if he's doing anything, he's bringing conviction. He's bringing indictment. I can't do that for you. You know, no pastor, no priest, no preacher, no Bible teacher can bring conviction, nor should they. If you feel that from a person, it's not the gospel. The only person who can really bring deep conviction about your sinful condition and your need for Christ is the Spirit of God. How else would a person realize, like how else would a person realize their hopelessness, their need, their sinful condition? Go forward to John chapter 16, just flip forward a page to John chapter 16 verse 8. Jesus, again, talking about the Spirit, says, when he comes, when I send him, when he comes, he's going to convince or convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
I can't convict you. I, I don't want to convict you. Now, there's sometimes as parents, we wish we could convict our children, right? Maybe even a time when you want them locked up. I don't know. But we can't affect that in people's hearts. But the Spirit of God, He does that. Like you can know that the Spirit of God is at work because He, he brings indictment deep in, in the heart and the soul of a person. I can't do that. You can't do that. It's not until you start to feel the weight of your need, the weight of your condition. Like, think about it. Um, think about it this way. When your need for forgiveness begins to outweigh, so kind of look up here and watch this. When your need for forgiveness and your, your, your guilt and the sense of culpability, when your need for forgiveness begins to outweigh embarrassment or outweigh um, pride or outweigh your desire to save face, to be respectable in the community, when your need for forgiveness, when your awareness and your need for forgiveness and the weight of your sin and your own personal, like you start to feel the indictment of the Spirit of God. Here's what happens to the scale. Whoom. You feel the weight of conviction. And you're like, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I need Christ. I don't care what the guys at work are going to say. I don't care what my husband's going to say. I don't care what, I don't, I don't care what my buddies in high school that I used to drink with. I don't care because I feel the weight of my need for Christ. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do in your heart. That's what He's doing in your heart. If you're wondering whether you are a Christian or considering Christianity or ready to follow Christ, here are two things that the Spirit of God will convince you of. And when He convinces you of these two things, you are ready to believe. Number one, your sinful condition. Like, I am sinful. You have to come to the place of feeling that weight and being willing to vocalize that. I'm sinful. Do you, do you, you remember happy days, right? Remember the Fonz? Like, he could never say, what could he never say? I was, remember that? Do you remember that? He's like, I was, they just draw the whole thing out. He could never say I was wrong. You, you won't be ready to follow Christ until you can say, I was wrong, I am wrong, I don't just do bad things, there's badness inside of me, my sinful condition. Secondly, when you recognize that Jesus is your only hope for rescue, like no one else can get you out, no one else can save you. When you, when you discover those two things, you are ready to follow Christ. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. He's bringing, prosecuting conviction, just like one point after another until you're just standing there naked and ashamed. And then the good news of the gospel is Christ comes in and covers, beautifully covers your nakedness and shame. Here's the fourth point. 
he grants the peace of Jesus. This is so good. And who doesn't want peace? Like, who wouldn't want this? So the Spirit not only brings conviction, but he brings deep peace in the soul of a person. And there are a couple of translations of verse 16 and 26 where instead of calling him helper or advocate or counselor, the translators chose to call him comforter. And that's for good reason. Because there's only one person who can bring the comforting peace of Jesus. Because don't you agree that if you were standing here this morning walking with the Son of God uh, through through Grandin Village, like the Son of God was walking with you down through Grandin Village at lunchtime, don't you think you'd have a sense of calm, like everything's going to be okay? Peace? There's only one person who can bring the peace of the Son of God with you to stay with you and to, to, be, to dwell with you and be in you, and it's the Spirit of God. That's who He is. That's what He's doing. The Spirit of God is the one who brings the comforting peace of Jesus. Shalom, wholeness, rest, internal flourishing. Aren't aren't you tired of being anxious about your children and your grandchildren? About your finances? About your student loans? About your job? About the recent diagnosis? About your future? Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I'm giving to you. How can he say my peace? He's referring to the peace that the Spirit of God will grant them in his absence. That's the only way it could be his peace, by coming from another divine person, another comforter. You know, if our world is anything, it is jacked up, and anxious and nervous. I can't tell you the number of people I see and interact with daily who are just constantly, they're just, I mean, just moving all the time. Just like, hey, what's up? What's up? I'm like, hey, just, hey, can I help you? Take a deep breath. Like, we are living in an anxious world. So we say, hey, chill out. But chill doesn't last very long. Where do you get your chill? Some people get it from drugs. Some people get it from alcohol. Some people get it from, you know, entertainment. But those things are just so cheap. And you know they're cheap because they keep running out. Jesus promises a peace that is beyond understanding and comprehension and is lasting. He says to these disciples who are not sure about their own future, I am going to be with you. Peace, my peace I leave with you through the person and the promise of the Spirit. And, And while I'm gone and you don't know what's about to happen to me, I'm promising you I'm coming back. And while I'm gone, he's going to bring this sense of wholeness into your life while I'm gone. But the promise is not just for the first disciples, it's for every single disciple of Jesus, which is why Paul says in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, right? 
Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard your, what, hearts like a, like a troop of warriors. The peace of God will guard you. And so the peace of God will affect internal, personal composure. It'll also bring harmony to you as a people. It'll, the peace of God will bring harmony to your family, to your church family. And that's different than I'd like to buy a wor- a co- the world of Coke. How's the song go? I'd like to buy the world. And, we, and we're all going to sing in perfect harmony. Yeah. Come on. That, that's, but that's just, that, that's only half. You understand that's only half right. Because unless the gospel is what brings harmony, it's, it's not lasting harmony. Jesus is saying, I'm not only going to change, I'm not only going to bring such deep composure and wholeness and flourishing on the inside of you, but I'm going to allow you to relate with your family and work members and church members, and I'm going to bring a harmony, and the gospel harmony that I'm bringing makes it, po- makes it possible for you to be less concerned about yourself and more concerned about the other person. That's how you get harmony. You don't get harmony by saying, you need to do what I want you to do. That doesn't bring a lot of harmony. But Jesus says, I, I want to bring, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring peace and unity and harmony. And we'll talk more about that in, in the coming days when we get to 17. But it's gospel resourced peace, gospel resourced harmony and wholeness. As I observe maturing believers, as I, as I just through the years observe maturing believers, who are growing with an awareness of the presence and peace of of God's Spirit and Christ in their lives. I see less sarcasm, less snark, less self-righteousness, less quickness to judge. I, I can see it in the produce section of their life. I see it. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. It's not just that sarcasm and snark and self-righteousness is kind of evaporating in their life because that's not the way it works. It's because the presence of God's peace and his his wholeness is, is pressing those things out. So when the Spirit of God is at work and he's granting the peace of Jesus into my... when, When the Spirit of God is granting wholeness and peace and shalom in me... I have less need to act that way and talk the, those ways and be that way because I'm no longer living for myself, right? You're no longer living for yourself but the one for, who died and rose on your behalf. The Spirit of God is at work changing us, bringing peace bringing wholeness. Um, I want that in my life. I can't imagine you not wanting that in your life. The Spirit makes good on the promise of Jesus. 
He doesn't make good just on these four promises. The homework assignment would be this. Think with me about the hundreds of ways, think with me about the hundreds of things Jesus has promised us. Guess what the Holy Spirit is all about? Making good on those promises. These four and a hundred others. We should pray that God will help us to see what that looks like and what it would look like to change our lives. So I want to ask you to pray with me and Let's ask Jesus to bring us a peace that would be inexplicable. Um, and let's, let's ask him to bring a wholeness to our lives that others would see and it would just be glorifying to God. So can I ask you to pray with me? Jesus, thank you for sending the Spirit that our lives might glorify the Father. Would you convince? Would you penetrate? Would you, would you prosecute our hearts this morning? Spirit of God, have the freedom to bring indictment and awareness of sin and need for gospel change. Just pray that for a moment. Pray and ask the Spirit of God to have the freedom to bring you to a place of indictment this morning. And then, and then after that, thank God that you have one advocate in Jesus. And that, that's all you need. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of all the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. My advocate who made an end to all of my sin. Lord, we trust in Christ alone to save us today. We pray this in his good and beautiful name. Amen. Let's sing in response.